Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro-access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. If one could only use one word to describe Marilyn Monroe, I think it would be iconic. She's one of the most recognizable names and faces of the modern world. If I could add a few other words, I think timeless, radiant, sensual, sexy, classic. Those would also make the mix. And I think complex complicated, and misunderstood would soon follow. Exploited and abused might sneak in there too. After living in a world of Marilyn Monroe research the past few days, uh, I would not describe her as a dumb blonde or just some, some arm candy or eye candy. She fought against those classifications throughout the height of her fame because she was so much more than that. She was a fighter, a survivor, a true Hollywood star. So let's get beautiful today. Let's get glamorous. Let's even dig into a crazy death conspiracy that, as skeptical as I am, I think I actually believe. Let's get Tinseltown, and let's get Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Hi, everybody. Happy Monday. I'm Dan Cummins, and you are listening to the Time Suck Podcast. A uh, fan in Cleveland, Shana, pointed out that uh, over 30 episodes in, I still hadn't uh, ever thought to introduce myself, like every other host of every other show in the history of ever. So, uh, whoops. Uh, big thanks uh, to the hosts of the Always Listening Podcast, Josh and Joel, for reviewing Time Suck this past week. Totally unsolicited review of the show, uh, and from what I heard, I, th- I thought they did a great job. That was, that was so nice and unexpected. Thank you both. And I uh, came across some new phrases in the Time Suck emails. As I, as I went through them, uh, that were sent to admin at timesuckpodcast.com. Uh, live long and suck it from Ethan N. I like that. Live long and suck it. And uh, the couple that sucks together stays together from Ashlyn Donahoe. Loving the suck lingo. I really like that. I like, I like the couple that sucks together uh, um, stays together. I know there's uh, several couples out there who have emailed me that you listen to this stuff together. I really, I, I love it. I love it. I love it. Just keep sucking each other. Just suck each other so hard. Ah, makes for a happy relationship. Uh, new iTunes uh, comments uh, have been hilarious. Too many and too long to read now, but thank you. I, I love them. I do see them. Uh, truly LOL'd on a couple. And uh, and we are well over 500 reviews now. So bonus suck, Pablo. 
Coke Pinky Escobar coming out this Friday, April 28th, high noon Pacific time. Thanks, time suckers, for making that happen. Uh, the 600 review bonus episode is going to be something that ties, uh, I think, you know, somewhat into this episode for sure. JFK assassination and scandals. All right, get into some conspiracy uh, with his death. That I'm uh, after after uh, you know finishing out this Marilyn Monroe. I'm even more excited than I was going into the JFK uh, thought. I uh, found, learned some stuff about him in, in this episode, and you will as well. Okay, so yeah, very excited about that. Um, and all those reviews have definitely led to more time suckers. Where just the virus of curiosity and good times is spreading, just increasing the circle of suck. Circle of suck getting bigger. And as always, uh, appreciate those of you who have bookmarked timesuckpodcast.com. Uh, use that Amazon button to do your Amazon shopping. Those of you who threw some uh, bucks to the suck, clicking that PayPal button. And especially those of you who filled out that quick survey, podsurvey.com slash timesuck, making sure we get some quality sponsors, giving some deals that I can pass along to you, deals that you want. First sponsored episode is next Monday, and you're going to love it. Uh, quality, quality stuff. So very thankful. Because uh, again, you know, we don't want to get, get stuck with, you know, sponsors like, uh, you know, fucking sackadogshit.net. No one, nobody wants that for a sponsor. You know, get 20% off a sack of dog shit uh, dropped off on your fucking porch. Nobody wants that. Um, and now, before uh, before you learn so much about a little lady named Norma Jean, uh, let's go over a few time sucker updates. Updates. Get your time sucker updates. Okay, first one uh, is actually, I, I, I'm calling out myself. I'm time, I'm time sucker updating my, my own self. It's Leanne Womack, not Amy Lee Womack. Not Amy Lee Womack. Uh, I had Leanne written in my notes. This is about the. Uh, this is the last episode of the Mandela one, the Mandela effect. Where I'm talking about the singing the Bernstein Bears, which is Berenstain Bears uh, theme song, and I said it was sung by by uh, Leanne Womack, who's not a real person in this dimension. Uh, I think she is. Probably, I probably slid. I probably slid into a parallel dimension created by the '90s show Sliders, where a woman named Amy Lee is a country singer specializing in animated kids shows. But in this dimension, uh, I realized I don't know very much about country music, apparently. Uh, my wife, Lindsay, actually caught this mistake uh, before this episode came out. But since I, I didn't bring any of my recording equipment to Cleveland last weekend where I was doing shows, I couldn't re-record. Damn it. Also catching catch my own mistake. My own mistake. Uh, Nelson Mandela, I kicked off the episode referencing that he was an apartheid advocate, which is fucking nonsense. He was an anti-apartheid advocate. Huge difference. That would be pretty weird if Nelson Mandela had been in prison for fighting for more racial segregation. He's like, there's not enough. There's not enough apartheid. Let's fucking kick it up a couple notches. Uh, but, you know, as I said back in the Flat Earth episode, Tequila Tequila is a Vietnamese white supremacist, so I guess, you know, anything's possible. Uh, I also learned uh, this, uh, this past uh, week, going through emails, that I've been saying a few words wrong my entire life. This one comes in from Cam. He says, Cavalry, not Calvary. Dan, huge fan of the show and your stand-up. I caught your show in Jacksonville last month and laughed my balls off. Uh, while I'm not sure about the correct pronunciation of all the Roman names you mentioned in your Caligula episode of the suck, I am sure that you pronounced an English word wrong, you dickhead. Like many people, you pronounce the word uh, cavalry incorrectly. Cavalry is the term used to describe horse-backed infantry in which you were referring to. Calvary is where Jesus was reportedly crucified. Please, for the love of all the things that suck, pronounce it correctly. I was in the cavalry in the army, and we get super butt hurt when people pronounce it wrong. Suck so hard, Cam. God, thank you, Cam. You tension-paying son of a bitch. I've been saying the fucking, I've been saying that word wrong my entire life. Uh, every time I've tried to talk about soldiers on horseback, apparently I've been referring to the crucifixion of Jesus. A uh, little bit different. So it's cavalry. God, that, that's, that doesn't even sound right coming out of my own mouth right now, but I gotta, I gotta get used to it. 
Also, numerous time suckers uh, emailed me to let me know that um, emeritus is not a word. It's pronounced emeritus, emeritus, like Professor Emeritus. And incidentally, is defined as, uh, you know, of the former holder of an office, especially as a college professor, having retired, but being allowed to retain their title as an honor. So just like cavalry, I've, I've been pronounced that word wrong. I've been going, I've been coming in hot on that word incorrectly my entire life. Like I, I've been, I've been hitting emeritus with authority. What an, what an idiot I can be. I love that. I love that the, a word of like uh, academic prestige. <laughs> That's like that's like me um, walking in and be like, um, can I see the doctor? Is the doctor in? Uh, do you mean doctor? I mean what I said. I'm an intellectual. Is the doctor emeritus available for discussion of things of note? Fucking idiot. So, all right. So, uh, emeritus. All right, got it. Got the best update ever this week from Heather LeMay. Uh, this chat, I love this so much. She says, quote, so I'm in Chicago and I had to send a quick email to tell you about something awesome that happened today. I took one of those crime tours. The guide asked if any of us knew who H.H. Holmes was. He then went on to say something along the lines of, quote, I don't know. I didn't know much about him either until a podcast that Dan Cummins did. Fuck yes. Yes. Oh, I almost lost it. She says, uh, your time suck helped train a tour guide. Keep on sucking, Heather LeMay. How cool is that? I may not know how to pronounce about one in ten words in the English language, but I feel like I do throw out some decent info that people are using. That makes me feel really good. And last one is a great Scientology update from Mike Aldrich. Hey, Dan, just finished listening to your episode about Scientology, and hot damn what a mindfuck that was. I am a counseling student in grad school and have a few things I'd like to respond to. I was compelled hearing about the reactive brain sales pitch. Not because it is a heaping pile of garbage, which it is, but for the elements that actually do have elements of truth mixed in with the mountain of bullshit. It's true that the brain processes the world around you, and true that your memories are stored in a particular part of the brain. But oversimplifying brain functions and lumping them in together, lumping them together into the analytical mind is akin to describing the complexity of the gastrointestinal system as the shit center. That is fucking well written. Uh, you studied psychology and did some counseling, so this won't be news to you. News to you, but it may be food for thought for other listeners. Your brain is constantly taking in the world around you, but it is doing this through a highly complex section of the brain called the prefrontal cortex. It is a completely separate part of the brain called the limbic system. Memories are stored and consolidated in, consolidated in the hippocampus. So Elron batshit crazy Hubbard was kind of right. Traumatic memories that are stored in the brain that are unprocessed slash unresolved do have an effect on the rest of your brain and are triggered by stimuli that may create fear responses. This can affect the way people function in the world, such as veterans dealing with PTSD. More importantly, as a therapist in training, I was pissed to hear about the way therapy was depicted from this fanatic group of Mission Impossible love dipshits. Also love that. Uh, helping process trauma in order to live more healthy and fulfilling lives is a huge component of therapy, and hearing about the similar goals of Scientology really got to me. I feel for those who are truly suffering from mental illness who seek connection by getting involved with this bullshit. One thing that I would like to add to anyone who may be on the fence between traditional therapy and being audited by an untrained cultish motherfucker using a lie detector test ah, is that therapy is not always expensive. Check out community centers, college counseling centers, and nonprofit agencies, and you can find really low-cost therapy. True, your therapists are, are likely to still be in training, but we are heavily supervised and still pretty damn effective. Yeah, Mike. Also, we are ethically bound to keep just about everything our clients say in session confidential, unlike the auditing session in which they hear your darkest parts of your life 
to use against you later. This email is way too long, a time suck in itself, but I just wanted to get my thoughts out to you. I'm a huge fan of the show, and I'm constantly impressed and entertained by the way you blend your great humor and thorough factual research. Keep on sucking, brother. Mike Aldrich. Oh, man, thanks, Mike. As much as I've joked about bad therapists, uh, I do believe, man, there's a lot of good ones out there, too. You sound like a great one. And uh, yeah, and counseling can be very helpful in certain situations. Um, actually, uh, a topic of today's time suck. Marilyn Monroe did a lot of counseling and you know, and, and needed it. She dealt with a lot of shit, as we're going to find out. So don't be afraid to get some help if you need it. Uh, just um, referring to the Mandela Effect episode, just just don't see some quack who wants to exercise demons out of you or who convinces you through hypnosis that all your problems stem from satanic abuse you just magically remembered for the, for the first time. So uh, avoid those therapists. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. All right, Marilyn Monroe, here we are, a star that shone so bright. She makes more in death than most current stars make while alive. Her estate rumored to still make uh, somewhere north of $5 million a year. I found on some websites, actually, they, they, they put the number as high as $17 million. So a lot of money she's still making. All those T-shirts and collectibles, and they're adding up. Uh, ask Google who the most famous actress uh, of all time is, and Marilyn Monroe comes up number two, uh, right behind Audrey Hepburn and right before Meryl Streep. Personally, I think, I think Google got it wrong. Uh, according to the uh, uh, Guide to United States Popular Culture, as an icon of American popular culture, Monroe's few rivals in popularity include Elvis Presley and Mickey Mouse. No other star has ever inspired such a wide range of emotions, from lust to pity, from envy to remorse. Art historian Gail Levine has stated that Monroe may have been the most photographed person of the 20th century, and the American Film Institute has named her the sixth greatest female screen legend in American film history. The Smithsonian Institution, I've heard of it, uh, has included her on their list of 100 most significant Americans of all time, and both Variety and VH1 have placed her in the top 10 in the rankings of the greatest popular culture icons of the 20th century. But other than being famous, other than being sexy, other than being the female face of the 1950s, do you really know anything about Marilyn Monroe? I mean, that she sang Happy Birthday to JFK. All right. All right. You probably know that. Maybe you know that she was married to Hall of Fame Yankee center fielder and three-time MVP Joe DiMaggio. Maybe you know that. Maybe, she, maybe you know she was married to playwright, uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Arthur Miller. Now, I, I really didn't know much, even though my own daughter is named Monroe. Uh, for the record, before we even dig into this, uh, I want to be clear, my Monroe is not named after Marilyn Monroe. I, I think personally it would be a little creepy to name your daughter after a sex symbol. Uh, no, my daughter is named after uh, one of her, her mom's ancestors, a dude named Monroe, actually. Yeah, I guess that was a guess that was a thing at one time. Dude being being named Monroe. Uh, I, I did take my daughter to see uh, Marilyn star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, though, and she did put her hands inside of Marilyn's handprints in front of uh, Man's Chinese or Grauman's, whatever Chinese theater in Hollywood. Uh, she was definitely more interested in in Marilyn star than any other. Uh, any kid that's ever looked around a, a '50s diner knows who Marilyn Monroe is. You know, I mean, that's that's her face is just recognizable. You know, to me, her face is synonymous with movie star. And uh, and you're really about to you're really going to get to know her well uh, in, in this time suck. So let's start at the beginning. Let's start uh, with Marilyn's birth and move on up uh, up from there up into her initial stardom with the time suck timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. All right, June first, nineteen twenty six. Norma Jean Mortensen is born. In Los Angeles, California. Her name would uh, later be changed to Norma Jean Baker upon being baptized. Uh, for some reason, I didn't think she was born in L.A. I don't know why exactly, uh, but I would have guessed Minnesota or maybe Iowa if I would have had to. 
Um, she had just, just kind of like that Midwestern farm girl look beneath the glamour to me. But no, born, raised, became famous, and died all within a few miles or inside of Hollywood. Monroe was uh, born to mother Gladys Pearl Baker Mortensen, whose maiden name was Monroe. Uh, Gladys' first husband's last name was Baker. Her second husband's name was Mortensen, and neither man was Marilyn's father. Gladys was uh, long since divorced when Marilyn was born. We don't know anything for sure about Marilyn's father because uh, Marilyn herself never knew who her father was. The two main candidates are Gladys' second husband, Edward Mortensen, who was listed as her father on Norma Jean's birth certificate, and Stanley Gifford, uh, a co-worker of Gladys's, uh, with whom she apparently had an affair around the time of Norma Jean's conception. Several other men have been suggested as candidates, but these two remain the most uh, commonly debated. Marilyn herself believed Gifford to be her father. Uh, when you look at pictures of the two, uh, you can see a little resemblance uh, in facial structure, I think, uh, as do most of her biographers. But real father or not, uh, Stanley never claimed Monroe as his daughter. And her, and her childhood just kind of gets worse from there. Yep, that's right. Uh, her childhood was so terrible, uh, not knowing her father uh, doesn't even crack the top ten of her shitty childhood moments. All was not glitz and glamour for young Marilyn, uh, not by a fucking long shot. Uh, we know a little about her mom, and, and most of it stinks. Uh, for starters, she was uh, uh, mentally ill, suffering from paranoid schizophrenia. Mental illness runs in Marilyn's family on her mom's side. Her maternal grandma uh, was also mentally ill, dying of a seizure-related heart attack 19 days after being committed to an insane asylum for paranoid delusions when Marilyn was uh, two. Uh, her maternal grandfather uh, died uh, after losing his mind to syphilis, is, is what I came across. Uh, that sounds like a rough way to go. And for all we know, mental illness uh, ran on her father's side as well. So because of all this history, Marilyn herself was terrified of losing her mind later in her life. Now, Marilyn had two half-siblings, uh, Bernice and Robert Kermit, uh, both from her mom's first marriage to Jack Baker. But depending on which story you read... Uh, read, uh, both children were either taken away from Gladys and were raised by their father back in Kentucky, or Jack kidnapped the kids and raised them, uh, uh, you know, took them from her and raised them. Based on the mental illness, uh, more which we'll be getting into, I'm going to guess the kids were uh, taken from her, not by Jack, but probably by like the court. Uh, Marilyn would later uh, meet Bernice when she was 12 and Bernice was nine, and uh, sorry, and um, uh, meet Bernice when she was 12 and Bernice was 19, and they'd stay in uh, kind of like loose contact throughout Marilyn's life. But, but she never really had, she never like grew up with a sister, as we're going to see too. And she never even got to meet her half-brother Robert. Uh, he would die of tuberculosis before she even knew he existed in 1933. Uh, in addition to dealing with mental illness, Gladys, uh, her mom was also single and poor and just wasn't able to financially provide for Marilyn when she was born. Uh, which fucking sucks. I mean, you know, you know, you never want to be, at least I never want to be like too judgy to like the single mom, but, uh, and I, and I, you know, I know it was a different era there, but come on, fuck, this is your third fucking kid, lady. Jesus Christ. I mean, I guess I shouldn't be so hard. I mean, she does have, she's mentally ill, you know, so maybe she was just trying to do her fucking best, but man, you know, it's like if she did lose the first two kids, uh, I don't, why, yeah, why not that tie them up? Some kind of forced sterilization or something. Once you like, like you lose X amount of kids. I, that used to bother me when I worked at Child Protective Services, uh, which I did in college, I did like, like an internship. And uh, I remember this one lady, uh, she was, I've probably talked about this before. I feel like I've told this story so many times in my life. I don't remember where I told it. So I may, forgive me if I've told this on times so previously, but she, um, she was so, uh, oh, she, she was developmentally disabled. Uh, so she had some, you know, cognitive kind of impairment. And she also uh, had been convicted of uh, being a sex offender, uh, but she was still having kids. Like, like one, like one every 18 months to two years. She would just have another kid. And because of her background, the state uh, monitored her 
and uh, took the kid from the hospital. So she was just literally just pumping out foster kids, you know? I, I don't know how long that continued after I left. 15 years? 20 years? It's like in those situations, and I remember I, I brought it to one counselor. I'm like, well, why can't we fucking sterilize her? And, and he looked at me like I was Hitler's reincarnated son or some shit. Like, whoa, 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 you, you fucking eugenics, buddy. Calm, <laughs> oh, calm down, skinhead. You know, no, it's like fucking, man, Hitler tainted that whole idea. But in some situations, ah, anyway, all right. So it's it just sad to me. This lady who clearly was not capable uh, of raising kids, as we're going to find out, um, you know, had a third. All right. So two weeks after, after she's born, uh, baby Norma Jean was placed in foster care. Uh, for the next seven years, she lived with foster parents Ida and Wayne Bolander, uh, who seemed like, you know, all around good, decent people. Uh, they wanted to adopt Norma, but Gladys wouldn't let them. Uh, Gladys, man, she made, she made, again, she may have had the best intentions, uh, but the best thing she could have done for her daughter was to have thrown herself off a fucking cliff immediately after placing her baby in foster care. Uh, we, we And we've all either ran across or known parents like that, people who are just so irreparably damaged. Because she had more going on. It's not like I'm just picking on her because she was mentally ill. She had a lot more going on. Uh, the, like the best contribution, and this is going to sound harsh, that they could make to the world would be to disappear. And again, I know this sounds harsh, but uh, going back to my past again, you know, I did, I did some crisis counseling when I was 22 and 23 that dealt with attempting to reunite kids who would run away from home with their families. And I remember parents asking me like, you know, like, what should I do? How, how can I become a better parent? And, and for a few, the truth was I wanted to tell them, well, the next time your kid runs away, uh, don't fucking report it. Just let him go. Just let your 16-year-old go. Just give them a small chance to spend a, just their few remaining formative years with someone who's not a total piece of shit. <laughs> Anyways, old Gladys, she probably meant well, uh, you know, paving that road to hell with some good intentions. Um, so she'd come and visit Norma Jean kind of here and there those first seven years, slipping out, uh, and slipping in and out, excuse me, of, of kind of, uh, Norma's early life, which had to have been confusing and terrible for little Norma Jean. She doesn't know who her dad is. Uh, her mom's left her with foster parents, probably feels abandoned, you know, uh, but then, you know, instead of being able to kind of let go and, and cling to the new kind of, you know, parental figures, you got this mom figure who just come in and out of her life. I read all these things about like, you know, sometimes she'd visit her like, you know, a few days a month, usually on Saturdays when she wasn't working. But then a lot of those days she'd go out on dates. So she'd like come say hi real quick and then, ah, I gotta go, gotta go on a date now. Just just doesn't sound like a good mom in, in any way, shape or form. And uh, and it was, yeah, a bummer for little Norma Jean because the Bolanders, uh, they loved her. And uh, so did their son, Lester, who was only three months older than Marilyn. The two were affectionately known as the twins because they were inseparable. So she could have had a little brother, you know, uh, but they were separated. Because, God, tragedy, man. On August 18, 1933, Lester is mauled to death by a neighbor's pit bull in front of young Marilyn. The Bolanders couldn't understand why the dog killed her son, but left uh, little Norma Jean unharmed. So they grew to resent her, telling her, if you're so good with dogs, why don't you let them raise you? And then they threw her out of their home. And for the next three months, Norma was accepted by and lived with a pack of feral dogs whose behavior she soon learned to control with her mind, eventually teaching them to rob local banks and count cards at a local blackjack table. Okay, so the dog shit never happened. Uh, please tell me you figured that out before I got to the bank robbing and the card games. Uh, back to reality. August uh, 1933. Gladys, uh, mom, buys a small home at 6812 Arbel Drive in Hollywood. Norma moves in with her. Uh, she and her twin, a eh, little, little less, uh, actually are separated. A little Lester. 
Um, Gladys uh, gets a job in the movie industry. She's working as a film cutter at Consolidated Film Industries, but the good times don't last very long at all. Because that same goddamn pit bull that killed fucking Lester ate her mother. No, wait. I already said I was joking about that. Uh, no, but the good times really don't last long. In January of 1934, Gladys has a nervous breakdown and is committed to a mental institution uh, and for a long time. And uh, after she is committed, Norma continues to live in the same home her mom had bought with a British couple her mom had been renting some rooms to. And that goes on for the rest of the year. But then that couple runs into financial problems. I mean, this is, you know the Great Depression of the 1930s, they have to return to England. So then she goes to live with some neighbors, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Harvey Giffins. Harvey was a sound engineer with Radio Corporation of America. The Giffins offered to adopt her, but Gladys refused uh, that also. And then, uh, God damn it, you know, here's another, here's the second set of, you know, uh, parents. Uh, these ones sounded great by everything I read, who could have given her a good life. And she's like, no, 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 I'll, I'll be out. Eh, no, you won't. And uh, so then Marilyn goes to live with Grace McKee, uh, a friend of her mom's, uh, who'd met her mom when they both worked for Columbia Pictures. And then Grace becomes uh, Norma's legal guardian. But Grace wasn't married, couldn't provide for or take care of Marilyn. So she places her in the Holly Grove Orphanage at 815 North El Centro Avenue in Los Angeles uh, when little Norma is nine. She's occupant number 3463. Two chances again to be adopted, both shot down by Gladys. Now she's in a fucking orphanage. Good job, mom. Good job, mom. Uh, for nearly two years, uh, Marilyn would remain at the orphanage, a place Marilyn herself would later describe as a, quote, child factory, uh, a place where she, where she cleaned the bathroom, worked in the cafeteria. She called it easily one of the worst experiences of her life. Uh, when she was there, she used to sneak onto the roof and read magazines about movie stars that her guardian, Grace, would bring uh, when she came to visit. Uh, she, 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 you know, like the, she dreamed of being as famous as Jean Harlow someday. That was like her, her idol when she was young. But it must have seemed like light years away for young Norma, you know? Uh, sometimes uh, Grace would take her to the movies at Grandma's Chinese Theater, too. Uh, later, she'd say at this at the time of her life, yeah, again, she used to really kind of dream about being a movie star. Uh, and this is going to come back uh, later, that, that theater, just a strange kind of reality she had where she was in her childhood around, you know, kind of so much sadness. And then that same geographic space. Uh, around so much fame and fortune later. That must have been so surreal. Uh, one story that stands out from her time at the orphanage uh, really stuck out, stood out to me is, uh, check this out. She says that the kids there would get a birthday cake on their birthday. What if I just stopped there? What if I thought that was weird? Check this out, you guys. She thought kids got a fucking birthday cake. What? Who does that? You find out I'm like the one person who just never got the memo on birthday cakes. No, this is what happened. Uh, the kids would blow out the candles on their birthday cake, these poor orphans, and then the cake would be taken away. Uh, they wouldn't get to eat it, only to reappear the next time a kid had a birthday. This is from an interview with Marilyn about her orphanage days. Who? What the fuck? That's worse than just not having a cake. Whose idea was that? Was that they have a meeting for that? Uh, hey, hey guys, uh, you know how we don't have enough money to buy all the orphans cakes? Well, I was thinking, hear me out. We do have enough money for one cake. I mean, right? We have enough money for one cake. Here's what we do. We buy one cake, and we keep it in a dry cupboard. And that it doesn't get any mold on it, and uh, you know we we put some uh, cardboard around it so no one smudges it, and we just give the kids that cake. That's what we do. We give the kids that cake. Um, but what happens when the kids eat the cake at the first birthday party? That's that's not it. That's not it. No one eats the cake. What, what do you mean no one eats the cake? What do you what do you do with cake, Dennis? That's what you do. You eat you eat cake. Dennis. Look, listen to what I'm trying to tell you, Bernadette. No one eats this cake. 
Think think of it as more of a vase for the candles than as an actual cake. It's just a place for sticking candles in. Then the kids, they blow out the candles, and then we, we take the cake away. So maybe we should use got find some reusable candles as well. <laughs> there we go! Now you get it, Bernadette. Now you're thinking like a true orphan Annie-type ridiculous villain character. Okay, so if you're wondering, uh, could, this, could this happen? Could you actually keep reusing a cake like that over and over? I'm going to go with yes. I'm going to tell you why. Personal experience. My roommates and I had a, had a grocery store sheet cake my junior year of college. I don't even remember how we got it, but I do remember it stayed on this little side table in the living room for a good three months. I think actually even longer. I feel like it was like three to six months. It was, I remember being there like most of a school year. And then one night uh, during a kegger, this hammered drunk kid, this hammered freshman named Andrew, uh, took a bite of that cake, just helped himself. Just hammered drunk, like probably blackout drunk, scooped himself some of that cake. And my roommates and I just kind of looked at each other and we more momentarily debated if we should tell him how incredibly old that cake was. Like we just kept there as a joke at that point. But then instead of warning him, uh, we decided to take an alternate uh, route with our behavior. We decided to chant, eat the cake, eat the cake, eat the cake. <laughs> and then somehow uh, the, whole, the whole party starts chanting, eat the cake. And then he ends up uh, a few minutes later in only his beer-drenched uh, tidy-whitey underwear in, a, in this living room full of like 30, 40 college kids chanting, eat the cake, eat the cake. And then I remember him like gyrating his hips and thrusting and dancing around. And as he shoved fucking handfuls of this incredibly old cake into his mouth, washing it down with beer. The more he ate, the more we chant, eat the cake, eat the cake. <laughs> he single-handedly ate most of this entire fucking sheet cake. And to the best of my recollection, uh, recollection, uh, he didn't die. So, you know, a cake can probably last longer than you might think. Anyway, enough of that fun, light-hearted anecdote. Uh, let's get back into the torturous uh, sadness that is Marilyn Monroe's childhood. August 10, 1935, Grace McKee, who'd been visiting Norma Jean as often as she could while Norma remained in the orphanage, marries Irving Doc Goddard, actor-turned-precision-instrument technician, which basically uh, means he was a mechanic, uh, on August 10, 1935. Again, uh, he's not just a mechanic, though. He's also a drunk. Mmm, Yes. And Norma moves in with Grace and Doc the Drunk shortly after their wedding. She's taken out of the child factory and dropped into the molestation pit. Yep. Uh, late 1937, Marilyn tells a therapist uh, later that when she was just 11 years old, Doc came home drunk one night, stumbled into her room, and sexually assaulted her. Awesome. Right after fucking getting taken from the orphanage. Jesus Christ. So no, uh, Norma told no one. Uh, but Grace must have suspected something because she sent Norma uh, away shortly after that to live with Norma's great aunt, Ida Martin, in Compton, California. Uh, Pre-Dr. Dre Compton, mind you. Uh, they weren't sipping on gin and juice. Weren't rocking those 64 Impalas there just yet. It's a quiet suburb. Uh, also, also uh, Norma later revealed this wasn't the first time she'd been molested. Uh, she claimed that a neighbor molested her when she was living with the Bolanders when she was six or seven and then shortly after that, a cousin had touched her inappropriately as well, uh, all this before junior high. Shortly after moving in with Aunt Ida, uh, she alleged a neighbor girl also molested her. Just fucking, Her early childhood just a complete shit show. Okay, so fall of 1938, uh, let's move there. Her stay with Aunt Ida short-lived. In that fall, uh, she moves again, this time to live with guardian Grace McKee's aunt, Anna. Different aunt. Uh, not by blood. Uh, aunt Anna on Nebraska Avenue in the Sawtell neighborhood of Los Angeles. And incredibly, uh, Anna seems to have little to no interest in either molesting Norma or allowing her to be molested. Uh, actually, she was very kind to Norma. Norma began to dream uh, in earnest of being an actress while there. Uh, Anna encouraged her, telling her she was going to be a big star. 
And then, uh, sadly, in front of Marilyn, Anna was whisked away by a pack of feral pit bulls led by their three-legged, eye-patched, first-in-command, Bojangles. And Anna was never to be seen again. No. Actually, it was Anna who told Norma she believed that Stanley Gifford was her real father and that her mother had recently tried to escape from a psychiatric care uh, facility uh, to see her, but then had been transferred to a more secure facility in San Francisco. Man, mom. Mom's having a lot of her own problems. Gladys is Gladys is lucky she uh, she hadn't been institutionalized a few decades earlier, or as those of you who listened to my Insane Asylum episode know, she would have been lobotomized uh, already by old Dr. Icepick McBrainstabber. September 1941, Norma, still living with Aunt Anna, enrolls in Van Nuys High School, and then a year later, Anna is deemed too old to care for Norma uh, until she graduates. And rather than return to the orphanage, uh, 16-year-old Norma does the next best thing. Uh, she drops out of high school and marries her high school boyfriend, James Doherty. Uh, Doherty. There we go. James Doherty, the 21-year-old former football star and school president who had a great job at Lockheed Martin. I should note here that in the 1940s, being a 21-year-old dude uh, dating a 15- or 16-year-old girl was normal, as opposed to now, uh, where it's uh, unequivocally creepy. Uh, you're not going to find out your high school sophomore daughter is dating a 21-year-old high school, uh, a former high school sports star and current go-getter. Nope. If, uh, if she's doing that, she's going to be dating a 21-year-old dirtbag. Who got picked on in high school and is kind of making a living playing online poker or some shit. Uh, side note, I know some high school kids do listen to this podcast. If you do want to make it in Hollywood, if you want to have even a snowball's chance in hell as making it as big a star as, as Marilyn Monroe, and I know that that old phrase doesn't make sense, but uh, you have to drop out now and you have to get married, okay? It's the only way. Drop out of high school, get married. That's how you become a star. And the rest of becoming famous and wealthy, you know, just kind of works itself out once you do that. Uh, June 19th, 1942, Marilyn, just barely 16 years old, married for the first time, and Anna helps plan and pay for the wedding. Uh, her his, uh, her mom sorry, uh, sends her best wishes from the mental institution. Old Doc is unable to attend. He's already made uh, plans uh, to molest another family member probably that day. Uh, busy schedule, you know. Uh, by, by all accounts, her new husband, Jim, seems like a good dude. And he, at least, is happy with the marriage. The young couple goes fishing at Sherwood Lake. They ski at Big Bear Lodge. Occasionally go to the movies, go dancing. You know, Jim uh, Doherty's recollection of this period suggests they led a carefree and fun-loving existence. Marilyn, on the other hand, recalled in a 1956 interview that she made a suicide attempt during this time. So, not as happy for her. Uh, she'd later reflect on how she felt. Uh, felt like she was dying of boredom. She'd say, my marriage didn't make me sad, but it didn't make me happy either. We were a husband. Uh, my husband and I barely spoke to each other. This wasn't because we were angry. We had nothing to say. I was dying of boredom. Okay, so she's not fulfilled. Uh, Jim is stable, but not exciting. Uh, I'm sure uh, uh, she tried to re repress her childhood dreams of Hollywood stardom at first, but, you know, probably just couldn't make them go away. Uh, being the all-American housewife uh, just, you know, wasn't her destiny. So 1943, Jim signs up for the Merchant Marines during World War II and becomes a physical training instructor. He's sent to live on a training base at Catalina Island, where he and Marilyn would go live for roughly a year. Man, living on Catalina Island with the young Marilyn Monroe. Things are good for old Jim uh, Doherty in 1943. 1944, Jim is shipped overseas, and Marilyn moves in with his mom back in Burbank and gets a job working at the Radio Plane Company in Burbank, a uh, defense plant owned by actor Reginald Denny, uh, a man who had co-starred with Catherine Hepburn and Greta Garbo. And does, <laughs> Reginald Denny, I don't have the research in front of me right now, but it just popped in my head, but isn't he the dude who got hit with a brick after the Rodney King riots as well? I mean, he's not that dude, but wasn't there a dude named Reginald Denny that got smacked with the, in the head with a brick? I just remember Jim Carrey uh, impersonating him uh, in Living Color many years ago. All right, okay, that has nothing to do with anything. And here, at this aviation plant uh, where she sprayed the fuselages of target planes with a pungent liquid plastic, 
she'd get her first big break. Another good lesson for you young kids out there listening. Another good lesson for young actors or actresses, thespian hopefuls. If you want to be discovered by Hollywood, you'd fucking drop out of high school. That's step one. Step two, get married immediately. Step three, get a job at a factory. If Marilyn Monroe can be discovered at a factory, so can you. It's the only way. All stars are discovered in factories. Forget acting lessons. Forget casting calls. Factory work. That's how you become a star. Okay, so 1945, Army photographer David Conover uh, visits the plant on assignment and is immediately attacked by wild dogs working for the Emperor of Japan on a mission of sabotage. No. He's there to shoot photographs of women working to aid the war effort. Uh, He's searching for someone to boost the morale of the boys overseas, and that's when he discovers 18-year-old Norma Jean Doherty, who was so hot, her hotness stood out even when wearing company overalls. That's hot. That's what we call overall hot, which is, you know, one of the highest forms of hot. It's, you know, right under human skin vest hot. If, if you can wear a vest made out of human skin from people you've killed personally and still be hot, you're the hottest form of hot. Anyway, uh, David asked her to model for a series of photographs for Yank Magazine. <laughs> Yank, Yank Magazine. That sounds like a euphemism. I'm sure it's like about Yankee, you know, but the, the, the eighth grader me is like, <laughs> Yank magazine. All right. What's what's what was their sister publication? Tug Tug Journal? Okay. Conover's appealing shots of Norma Jean resulted in her first magazine cover and led to her career as a model. Uh, having never felt a sense of belonging in her early childhood, Norma Jean now uh, knew exactly where she belonged. In front of the camera. In front of the camera. That's where I belong. Uh, well, one thing led to another, and more photographers began working with Norma. Uh, who still worked at the plant during the day and would do her shoots on uh, the weekends and at night. And she soon signed with Blue Book Model Agency in Los Angeles, began lightening up her hair at the request of photographers, moving from her natural brunette color uh, slowly and surely to that platinum blonde we all know now. Uh, By the time her husband came back uh, on leave for Christmas in 1945, she had quit her job at the plant and now was modeling full-time. And Jim notices uh, a big change in Norma. She's no longer, you know... The, the, the doe-eyed teenager whose primary focus is being his wife. Now she's a model first, wife second. Uh, and that might seem normal uh, now for like, you know, in the, in the post-feminist world. Uh, or sorry, in the feminist world, you know, from that front. In the world after, excuse me, the post-feminist kind of uh, in the movement of the 60s and 70s. Jesus, I can't talk. But it was atypical for sure in the 1940s. You know, Jim's career wasn't the only career that mattered anymore. And things began to fall apart. Uh, when he shipped back out to sea in early 1946, they were effectively done as a couple. She stopped sending him letters, a few weeks later filed for divorce. By the end of 1946, the divorce was finalized, and Norma's modeling career begins to really take off uh, in earnest with the rise in popularity of pinup girls. Uh, yeah, man, I love pinup girls. The pinup look uh, has been the look I've always found sexiest when it comes to modeling. Big smiles, heels, curvy physique. Such a fun mix of sexiness and innocence, that look. I've always preferred the, uh, the pinup look to the high-fashion model look. To me, pinup girls are way sexier than runway models. Give me a suicide girl look over an L cover girl look any day. Uh, the pinup look conveys uh, to me you know, a sense of fun-loving, carefree, good times, uh, as opposed to the cold, unattainable look of the high-fashion model. So I, I get, man. I get why it became popular. Love it. So, and she was uh, – her, her, her and Betty Page, man. The, the best, in my opinion, with the pinup look. Uh, so in 1945, 1946, Norma Jean Dortry uh, does a ton of pinup shoots. These uh, modeling shoes pay for the bills for Marilyn as she tries to break into acting. Uh, and they also kind of lead to her first big break in acting. Uh, Howard Hughes, future Time Suck uh, episode and president of RKO Pictures, among many other business interests, 
sees one of her pinup photos on the cover of Laugh magazine in 1946 and wants to, uh, uh, to meet her to gauge her interest in appearing on film. Then her agent parlays that interest into uh, interest from other studios, uh, you know, like, like, like a bidding war, and she gets a deal at Fox, Fox Studios. Fox casting director Ben Lyon uh, helps the original blonde bombshell, or ha- had helped the original blonde bombshell Jean Harlow get her career going in the 30s. Marilyn was a huge fan of Jean, so, you know, this must have been uh, awesome for her, and reportedly said when he saw Marilyn, it's Jean Harlow all over again. He knew she had star potential right away. Uh, after getting approval from a few other Fox execs, Norma gets her first film contract in 1946 for $75 a week for six months, at which time she would be reviewed and possibly signed for another six months. Now, $75 a week may not sound much now, but that was solid money back in 1946. You know, you carry that over into a year, that's $3,900 a year when the average household income was $2,600. So it's not like wealth, but it's solid money. Well, uh, Ben Lyon uh, also supposedly changed Norma's name in 1946. He didn't like the sound of Norma Jean. Uh, he remembered a stage actress from the, uh, the 20s who, whom he had long admired, a musical performer named Marilyn Miller. He liked the alliteration. He liked the name Marilyn would suit Norma's uh, new glamorous identity as a Hollywood starlet. Uh, instead of Miller, Norma suggested her, her mother's kind of family name, Monroe, as a last name. And again, he liked that alliteration, Marilyn Monroe. He told Norma Jean that the double M was a lucky omen. And presto changeo, Norma Jean Mortensen Baker Dortry is transformed into Marilyn Monroe. And then just like that, Nothing really happened. Yep. Uh, I, I actually thought before researching this that Marilyn Monroe was some kind of overnight overnight success, you know? Like she was just discovered, and then bam, superstar. Not even close. Uh, after signing that initial contract, she was used as an extra in a variety of films in late 1946, early 1947. Then she got one line in 1947's uh, classic film, Scudda Who, Scudda Hey. Uh, <laughs> A film I haven't seen because I've always refused to watch uh, any movie with the words Scudda, Who, or Hey in the title. And that son of a bitch has all three. Uh, in this movie, she says, hi, Rad, to the main character as, as Rad walks by. That was her one and only line in the movie. Uh, the character's name being Rad, by the way. Very, very different if she was like, hi, Rad. Because then, in addition to being you know a poor piece of dialogue, uh, that would have been proof of fucking time travel since no one was saying Rad in 1947. Well, that one line was cut from the film. Uh, but she was given uh, another role immediately in 1947's Dangerous Years. She was giving 14th billing in a movie with 15 actors, and then Fox dropped her. Yeah. Uh, incidentally, uh, given 13th billing in that movie was a certain one-eyed, three-legged pit bull, Bojangles. That dog would go on to redefine Hollywood's depiction of fictitious three-legged, one-eyed canines I keep annoyingly bringing up forever. 1947. Out of work. Uh, Marilyn turned to theater uh, to try to gain some acting experience to convince the business, the business of the Hollywood, to give her another chance. She landed one of the lead roles in a lighthearted spoof of Hollywood entitled Glamour Preferred in the small, now-defunct Bliss Hayden Miniature Theater in Beverly Hills. But uh, while there, she ended up hurting her back due to constantly having to crouch in the tiny theater. It had a four-foot-tall ceiling, and the stage was only three feet wide. Uh, but it was said, quote, if you can act in miniature, you can act for the big time. And, quote, if you can play teeny tiny, you can play larger than life. And, quote, if you can work small, you can work Hollywood Avenue, billboard, tall. All right, I'm guessing uh, miniature uh, refers to the limited number of seats at this theater, not an actual tiny building. Uh, she appeared in at least one uh, other production at Bliss Hayden and then took acting lessons at the Actors Lab. Or, or I can only assume actors were continually forced to play scientists. Uh, of course, the scientist part is also nonsense, but uh, however, taking lessons at the lab nearly did ruin her career uh, during the anti-communist paranoia of the early 1950s McCarthyism 
Actors feared uh, to be communists could be blacklisted and banned from working in entertainment, and the founders of the Actors Lab had that happen to them. Unreal. It's such a fucking weird era, man. Early 50s McCarthyism. That whole thing in entertainment where they just, you know, suspected people of having communist agendas. Uh, most of them <laughs> did not. And even they did. It, what the fuck? How is that going on? It's a fucking free country. What you, I mean, they're, they're, you should be allowed to have a communist party in America, right? It's free. It's free. Let people, if people want, want to, want, if the majority wants to move towards communism, then I guess that's what we're fucking doing. Not that I agree with that, but it's just crazy to me when they do things like that in America. It's, it's a free country, as long as you fucking agree with our, our corporate interests. And then when you don't, uh, less free. We're going to go with less free. All right, 1948, hard work and grinding it out at the theater pays off for Marilyn, uh, 1948. She's given a second chance. She signs a six-month contract with Columbia Pictures. Uh, Marilyn's first film for Columbia is second billing. So moving up from that, what what was it, 14th earlier, uh, and Ladies of the Chorus, a low-budget musical featuring Marilyn as a burlesque star who falls in love with the son of a socially prominent family. Haven't seen that either because I refuse to see movies with the word chorus in the title. But now that I know it's about the world of burlesque, uh, I'm into it. You had me at burlesque. Big fan. Uh, she sings a few songs in this film, and she actually, I uh, listened to them. You know, she has a really pleasant singing voice. Check this out. It was cold outside of Tiffany's. I was shivering in the storm. I walked in and asked a gentleman, could I please keep warm? He asked me. Well, Columbia execs like her performance in this movie. They like it enough that they actually splice the scene of one of her songs into another movie, Okinawa in 1952. How fucking, how crazy is that? They took a scene out of a movie they showed people in the theater in 1948 and then just reused it in a totally different movie that didn't even star Marilyn Monroe in 1952. Can you imagine if they did that today? There's no way. You could, oh, they'd be ridiculed on the web. You could never get away with that. You're watching the new Logan X-Men movie. Halfway through the movie, they just splice in four minutes from Deadpool. Why, why'd you guys do that? Well, we we thought that the scene uh, when Deadpool had to regrow his hand was a good scene. Uh, people seemed to like it. It tested well. And uh, we didn't have to pay for it again. So, you know, why not give the people what they want? But you already gave them that. Well, why not re-give the people what they already have wanted? Well, unfortunately for Marilyn, uh, Columbia Pictures was ran at the time by a notoriously awful man named Harry Kahn, and her contract was not renewed, despite the, uh, how well she did. Uh, legend has it he was too lazy to walk down the hall from his office to a screening room to watch her audition for Born Yesterday, so she never got the role. Uh, another legend has it that Kahn invited Marilyn to spend a weekend aboard his yacht. When she refused, he snapped at her, This is your last chance, baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, shortly thereafter, her contract came up and Khan refused to renew it. So, you know, lazy or dirtbag? Which one was he? Uh, or both. I, I feel like 75% uh, of entertainment execs fall into one or both of those categories. Uh, 1949. Rest of 1948, early 1949, uh, were rough for Marilyn. She was out of a contract again. She'd been cast out of Hollywood twice now. She picks up a few small parts uh, as an uncontracted actress in a few minor films, most notably Love Happy, one of the Marx Brothers later films, and A Ticket to, ha- to Tomahawk, one of, the, one of the weirdest named films of all time. Uh, but she's, but again, without a contract, without regular income, uh, financial trouble leads her to making a decision that could have killed her career but ended up uh, kind of launching her to stardom later in the long run. She agreed to pose completely nude uh, for photographer Tom Kelly on May 27th, 1949. He was shooting some uh, pics for a racy pinup calendar. She signed the release as Mona Monroe, trying to hide her identity. 
Uh, and then one of the pictures from the shoot titled Golden Dreams, uh, one of the non-nude photos, where she's in a little uh, scanty little bikini, uh, skimpy, excuse me, bikini. Uh, this, this photo begins appearing on calendars, deck, uh, decks of cards, keychains, coasters, glasses, etc., uh, odd uh, collectibles in December of 1953, Golden Dreams, in which Marilyn isn't, again, totally nude, is also used to launch the premiere issue of Playboy magazine, uh, that cover photo. So the photo, along with the first one titled A New Wrinkle, uh, would go on to become two of the most famous pictures in Hollywood history. Uh, Marilyn would only make uh, 50 bucks off the actual photo shoot, but the exposure they got her made her a household name. Original sales of that calendar reached 8 million copies by the mid-1950s, with millions more sold off of bootleg versions. Basically, every dude between the ages of 12 and 40 uh, had either seen, uh, either had or had seen that calendar in the 1950s. So shortly after that calendar comes out, she meets Johnny Hyde, Longtime William Morris agent who gets her a big role in the 1950s, uh, The Asphalt Jungle. Uh, strangely enough, former husband Jim uh, Doherty, by that time a Los Angeles police officer, is assigned to keep the fans behind the barricades at the Grauman's Egyptian Theater premiere of The Asphalt Jungle. The same movie theater she used to see films with, with Grace McKee, when that woman, would, her guardian, would come visit her when she was living in that horrible orphanage when she was a kid. Uh, she didn't attend the premiere on the advice of her agent. Maybe he knew Jim was there. But what a strange experience that must have been for her, right? To have a triumph like that, uh, to, have to premiere, you know, like that, uh, that, this film she has a prominent role in, in front of the man, you know, that she, that she had uh, uh, walked away from in the marriage at a place where she would go as a, to escape the orphanage as a kid. Ah, yeah, just what, what a weird, what a weird moment that must have been for her. Um 1950, her strong showing in the asphalt jungle helps her new agent, Johnny, get her a smaller role in a bigger movie, Joseph uh, Mankiewicz's uh, All About Eve. So, uh, you know, bigger director, smaller role, but bigger director. All About Eve appeared actually uh, is a very well-received film. Appeared at number 16 on the American Film Institute's 1998 list of the 100 best American films of all time. Uh, all About Eve received 14 Academy Award nominations, a uh, feat only matched by the 1997 film Titanic, and the 2016 film La La Land. Uh, Betty Davis and Ann Baxter both received Best Actress nominations for the same film. Uh, by far, the most prestigious movie Marilyn had landed a part in, and that role led directly to another screen test with Fox Studios. So Marilyn, you know, uh, she, she closes uh, this deal on December 10th, 1950. Uh, unfortunately, the agent who'd fought to get her another chance in Hollywood, Johnny Hyde, has a heart attack seven days later on December 17th. And then he dies the next day. Marilyn was so upset by his passing, uh, she actually attempted suicide herself the following week, uh, writing a note, leaving some of her belongings to another friend and nearly overdosing on a bottle of sleeping pills. Man, well, once she recovers from Johnny's death, she finds herself at the beginning of a real career in Hollywood now. And she's got she's got an, a, a real shot now. Fox puts her to work almost immediately in the 1951 comedy, uh, As Young As You Feel. Critics praise her performance. The film does well at the box office. Color photo uh, of her is, is featured in, in Life magazine. She's asked to be presenter at the Academy Awards ceremony. Her inclusion as a presenter was probably based on her appearance that Johnny got her in All About Eve, uh, one of the most prominent feature films, again, that previous year. Uh, Marilyn presented the Oscar for her standing, outstanding achievement in sound recording to Thomas T. Moulton for his work on All About Eve. And then Fox immediately puts her in another movie, 1951's Love Nest. And now she was successful enough to start getting the hate and jealousy she'd get the rest of her career. Uh, TV personality Jack Parr had a secondary role in Love Nest. And he's one of the first of her co-stars to speak unkindly about her. And kind of these uh, along the same lines that a lot of people would. He comments that he saw Marilyn carry around several books by Marcel Proust while on the set. But he claims that she never read one. 
She was just a dumb blonde starlet, you know? That stereotype really gets going. Uh, Parr says her attempts to become well-read were just mere pretensions, remarking that, quote, beneath the facade of Maryland, there was only a frightened waitress in a diner. What a fucking dick he sounds like there. Uh, Parr's opinion, although echoed by other people uh, throughout the years, I think is bullshit, you know? He apparently did not know that during the production of Love Nest, uh, Maryland was enrolled in adult extension program, uh, some adult extension program at the University of California at, at Los Angeles, UCLA. Jack Parr himself never attended any uh, college uh, courses at all. So while at UCLA, Marilyn took courses in literature and art appreciation. Uh, she was bright and intellectually ambitious. Uh, traits that just happened to be completely overshadowed by a curvy figure in the extremely patriarchal society of 1950s America. And then also 1951, such a big year for Marilyn, uh, she landed a new contract at, at Fox for seven years now. Huge contract, all right? Never have to worry about money again for the rest of her life. And then last but not least, before we hop out of this timeline, 1951, also a huge year for one Michael McDonald. It's the year he was conceived in Ferguson, Missouri. Uh, he'd be born on February 12, 1952, and in 1983, he would join forces with two-time Academy Award nominee and brother from another mother, James Ingram, to sing the smash hit Grammy Award winner for Best R&B Performance by a duo or group with vocals, Yamo Be There. Yamo be there, oh, Yamo be there, whenever you call. You just got McDonald. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. All right, eventually, I, I promise, someday, I will get sick of McDonald and you. Uh, okay. I know there was a lot of info also, but I, I just felt like before we got into the famous marriages and the superstar that be, you know, that was Marilyn Monroe, the kind of the, the Marilyn Monroe we, re, we remember, uh, we just needed to understand where she came from. You know, it's just interesting. On the one hand, you have a person who, who's achieved fame and financial stability by the age of 25, you know, hard to feel sorry for that. Uh, however, on the other hand, you have someone who never had a proper male role model, uh, someone who never knew a father's love, someone who never really knew a mother's love. You know, she grew up with a minimum. Uh, seven different family situations, plus an orphanage, uh, plus a mom. I think she actually had many other foster, little quick foster family situations other than that. A um, few days here, a few days there. Uh, mom bouncing in and out of her life. Uh, she's molested by not one, but several people. Uh, one of which, you know, was a father figure, uh, Doc the Drunk, all, all before the age of 16, when then she drops out of high school and gets married and is working at a factory by 18. And then over the next, you know, seven years, she experiences her first divorce, a taste of uh, uh, Hollywood, followed by rejection, another taste of Hollywood, followed by another rejection, finally some success, and then the one person she can share it with dies a week later. She may be only 25 uh, right now in our little narrative, but she's, she's, she's an old 25. She's had a hard, hard 25 years in many ways so far. But now she's becoming a real star. She's loved by millions across the country, country something she's always wanted. Uh, she once said, quote, I want to be a big star more than anything. It's something precious. I really love this quote of hers. She says, quote, I used to think as I looked out on the Hollywood night, there must be thousands of girls sitting alone like me, dreaming of becoming a movie star. But I'm not going to worry about them. I'm dreaming the hardest. Wow. Uh, well, and, and yeah, it's worked out for her. She stars in 1952's Clash by Night, a smashing box office success, partly because uh, those nude photos from her calendar shoot a few years prior resurface. Uh, could have been a scandal for some, but it just enhanced her fame. Uh, the photos were used again uh, in the first edition of Playboy, as I mentioned, 1953. And now she's not just a star. She's a sex symbol. And, and the sex symbol uh, kind of status is something she struggles with the rest of her career. 
you know, her looks and sex appeal did launch her to fame, but also held her back, you know, art- artistically when she tried to be considered for more dramatic, more serious roles. Uh, the public in general just never really took her seriously, ever, when she was alive. Uh, she got thrown into that hot, ditzy blonde category, and she just couldn't pull her way back out, really. Uh, the public didn't think it was a part she was playing. They thought that really was her. Why do we do that? Why do we denigrate an actress's abilities uh, when she has a sexy photo shoot, for example? Especially if it's nude. You know, isn't that, isn't that interesting? I, th- I think, like, why is it okay to be naked in, like, an art house film? Uh, but not in a porno, for example. I mean, really think about that for a second. You know, take take away your judgments, take away your preconceived notions. Simulated sex is okay, uh, but not real sex. Just to go with that example, it's pretty silly when you think about it. The lines we choose to draw, totally subjective, arbitrary lines. Uh, can a woman be a serious actress and be comfortable and even excited to show off her her naked body? Why do we? Why, why do those two um, seem mutually exclusive? I don't know. It just reminds me of some models I worked with when I hosted a morning show uh, for Playboy's TV channel. And if you're surprised hearing that Playboy <laughs> recently had a TV channel, uh, so was I uh, when I got the audition. Uh, now, were some of the Playboy models I worked with on that show incredibly dumb? Uh, yeah, just people people in general can be incredibly dumb, for sure. Uh, were some of them extremely intelligent? Yes, uh, they really were. Yeah. Uh, I was surprised by how many women uh, who asked me about the show when I was working on it seemed more offended that I thought some of them were really intelligent as opposed to being offended by me thinking that some of them were not very intelligent. It's almost as if it, it's almost as if it just didn't seem fair to some people that you, you, the women could be hot, sexually uninhibited, and intellectual. Well, I, I met some intelligent, talent, talented, beautiful women working there who also happened to uh, love getting naked. Were they exploited? Sure, but willingly. And no more exploited, in my opinion, than a dude who poses naked. No more exploited than a professional athlete who becomes promoted by TV networks uh, who then don't pay him uh, for the extra promotion they're doing promotion that makes you know the network execs more money like you know Hugh Hefner I don't think uh has uh, didn't exploit young attractive women any with Playboy any more than like Roger Goodell exploits young male athletes in the NFL um it's kind of the nature of entertainments to be exploited on some level uh the attitude that all, all nude models are somehow victimized is kind of absurd to me you know that's giving too much power uh, to nudity just fucking body we have that you know I've heard that argument too you know get the fuck over it Arguments about how, like, you know, low self-esteem uh, of nude models and strippers, you know, how bad it really is. And, you know, in Marilyn's case, I mean, she did clearly have daddy issues. Uh, she did have low self-esteem. But is is that why she chose to model nude? Or did, or did part of her like it? Did a part of her enjoy being an exhibitionist? You know? Um, and I always wonder, like, you know, in these situations, do people feel bad? Uh, do these women feel, you know, bad and have low self-esteem because they're posing nude? Uh, do they feel bad because they're having sex on camera in that previous example, or do they, or do they feel bad because society's judgment, harsh judgment of those choices, which is two very different things, you know, like does dancing naked for the viewing pleasure of others being objectified by, you know, others, uh, being a victim of the male gaze, does that make someone feel bad? Or does knowing that other people not in the strip club in that example, uh, think that you're trash make you feel bad? You know, that judgment, again, very different things. Is the activity or the judgment of the activity the thing causing the poor self-esteem? I don't know. Just an interesting thought, I think. We all, we all make these rules, you know? What's, what's good? What's bad? We decide collectively what's sacred, what has value. Strip away all of that, and we're just, uh, in my opinion, evolved primates uh, who've overcomplicated our brains thanks to a constant awareness of our own mortality. But I'm getting a wee bit off topic here. I, I know that. I just think Marilyn's later struggles to be taken seriously uh, were directly related to our society's judgment towards embracing one's sexual nature. You know, like would Meryl Streep be considered as good of an actress if she looked like Heidi Klum or, Gis- or Giselle or if she'd posed in Playboy or some other, you know, nude magazine? Uh, I doubt it. Even if, even if everything else was the same, even if her, her roles were played exactly the same way, everything else being the same, uh, if she would have, you know, posed nude 
or or just been, you know, more sexy, uh, I don't think she'd be taken this seriously. Anyway, Marilyn Monroe did want to be taken more seriously. Acting classes, uh, she started getting into those you know, pretty heavy. She studied method acting, tried a lot of acting coaches. She even at one point worked at a fish packing plant uh, to prepare for a role. And that, this was the height of her fame when that wasn't common to do things like that. Uh, she moved to New York, began taking acting classes with uh, Constant Collier, uh, attending workshops on method acting at the Actors Studio run by Lee Strasberg. Uh, Strasberg uh, was one of the, if not the most influential acting coach of his day, uh, born in 1901 in Austria-Hungary, raised in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. He was a genius at analyzing an actor's performance, a stern and cold taskmaster uh, as well. Short, bespeckled, and intense, uh, he wasn't, recalled student Ellen Burstyn, uh, one for small talk. Love Ellen, by the way. Her performance in 2000's Requiem for a Dream with Jared Leto and Jennifer Connelly is riveting. Uh, for Marilyn, who grew up shunted from, one, shunted from one foster family to another, not knowing who her father was, Les became a, a beloved paternal figure, autocratic yet nurturing. His acceptance of her as a private student bolstered her confidence, gave her the training to improve her acting, turned her from a movie star and, and a punchline with the press uh, into at least a, a true artist in some, some uh, uh, people's eyes. Uh, she never was fully respected by the public, but, but she got some of them won over. So that was big for her. And, and I love that about Marilyn. Like, being famous wasn't enough for her. She, she wanted to be respected by critics. She really wasn't an, an artist. But it just, you know, it wasn't easy to come by. For every one role she did that was well-received, it seemed like there was three that were torn apart. You know, her determination uh, did not make life easy for her, her determination to be taken seriously. Uh, those negative reviews weighed on her. Because of her childhood, she had a deep need to be loved, to be wanted, to not be cast aside. And she, uh, she developed some serious performing, uh, performance anxiety, uh, ended up taking long hiatuses away from filming, the height of her fame to take more acting lessons, insisted on having her acting coaches on set to help her with every take. She, just, she grew this reputation for being like really difficult towards the end of her career on set, but I think a lot of it just came from she just wanted to be really good, and she was just you know tired of and being torn apart for her performances. Oh. But enough about all of her acting, you know. She'd, she'd go on to win a Golden Globe in 1960 for Some Like It Hot. She was a huge star. She made a lot of money, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so let's look at the rest of her life now. Uh, she had numerous, numerous affairs, flings, uh, brief relationships after her first marriage ended in 1946, but wouldn't commit to a truly serious relationship again until 1952 when she met Joe DiMaggio, legendary Yankee center fielder who just retired the previous year. And what a relationship they'd have. Apparently, Monroe uh, wasn't as into him initially as he was into her, but uh, his persistence paid off. The man was smitten. He, he'd fallen uh, really hard for her. Uh, he'd fallen so hard for her, he'd have flowers delivered to her grave on the anniversary of her death for like 20 years after she passed. Uh, when they met, he was 37. She was 25. His career had just wrapped up. He just retired from the Yankees. Uh, hers was just getting revved up. And their relationship was doomed from the start. Uh, DiMaggio was obsessed with Marilyn. Um, but he saw her through kind of his own narcissistic lens. He loved her, was thrilled to be chosen by the world's most desirable woman at that point. But, but you know, he didn't want her to continue being herself. You know, he wanted her to wear high neck blouses, low hemlines, and to quit being a movie star. A friend commented on how delusional Joe uh, was about what he expected from Monroe. It's, quote, here's this young, beautiful woman on the verge of becoming one of the most successful and famous, famous actresses in the world. And she's going to give all that up to make lasagna for Joe and spend her days changing diapers? Well, doomed as it may have been, on January 14th, 1940, or 54, DiMaggio and Monroe elope in San Francisco. Uh, the marriage apparently had ground rules laid down by Joe from the start, rules that Marilyn agreed to, probably out of some kind of daddy issues, to be honest. Uh, she was always drawn to older men. She wanted someone to protect her, lay down some, some rules. Well, here, here's uh, Joe's rules. DiMaggio had to approve uh, all of her future films. Monroe was never to be semi-dressed. 
She had to break out of her dumb blonde typecasting, a point she agreed with there, uh, and she wasn't to outshine him, basically. When, when she did, he'd sleep in another bedroom and go days without speaking to her. Why do people go into relationships with that kind of nonsense from the fucking get-go? Here's some real advice to young people listening. If someone, you know, wants to be in a relationship with you, but only on the conditions of X, Y, and Z, run. Get the fuck out. They should be looking for a partner, not a project. And, and if you feel like you need to be someone's project, you're not ready for a relationship. Go get your shit together on your own. Go fix whatever you need fixing, whatever you feel like you have to fix. Uh, but then don't fix whatever you really don't want to and find someone who loves you kind of as is. Well, apparently, uh, Joe wasn't just controlling. He was physically abusive. Uh, his son, Joe Jr., recalled being woken up one night by uh, his dad and Marilyn's fighting, saying, quote, I was asleep downstairs, and I woke up to the sound of my father and Marilyn screaming. After a few minutes, I heard Marilyn race down the stairs and out the front door and my father running after her. He caught up to her and grabbed her by the hair and sort of half-dragged her back to the house. She was trying to fight him off but couldn't. Yikes. Uh, also, uh, some real advice, uh, ladies uh, listening, if, if a dude puts his hands on you, uh, they tend not to stop, right? Uh, do, do any research you want on that, but don't think, oh, he was, just, he was just really mad one time. Now, when a dude crosses that line and fuck starts smacking you, get the fuck out. Fuck that guy. Like, seriously, just out. Okay, nine months in, Monroe could take no more. In October 1954, she files for divorce, citing mental cruelty. Oh, apparently, the filing obliterated Jolt and Joe for the rest of his life. Marilyn Monroe was his singular obsession. He dated girls who looked like her. And this is so weird. This is the weirdest thing I found on all, everything I researched about Marilyn. Rumor has it uh, DiMaggio spent $10,000 on a life-size sex doll made in Monroe's image. One year after Monroe filed for divorce, he allegedly showed it to a stewardess he was seen and said, She's Marilyn the Magnificent. She can do anything Marilyn can do except talk. How fucking crazy is that if that's true? And how powerful was her sexual attraction if it was she turned one of the greatest baseball players of all time into a doll fucking maniac when she left? <laughs> My God. Okay. Well, Monroe takes a break uh, from serious dating after Joe Dollfucker DiMaggio and did something that I think is super cool. Uh, she opens her own production company in 1954, Marilyn Monroe Productions Incorporated, a thing very common for actors and actresses now, extremely uncommon back then. Uh, I think Monroe actually uh, uh, was the first actress to do this. Uh, I mean, there may have been a few actors that did something similar, but uh, Marilyn Monroe Productions was established with 101 shares of stock. Marilyn controlled 51 shares. Uh, her partner, business partner, Green, uh, controls the remaining 50. Uh, her function was the star in the film selected by the company, while Green was going to conduct all the business and pay the bills. And she did this because she wanted a better contract from Fox. It was such a different era back then, the age of studio contracts. A handful of studios controlled every aspect of filmmaking from the 1920s into the 1960s, once the, like, the talkies started going. Uh, production, talent, distribution, actors and actresses forced to kind of become company men. Uh, most actors and actresses didn't audition for various roles. You know, they did a screen test to find out if a studio wanted to work with them, and then they were signed to contracts and told what movies they would be in. Uh, and Marilyn didn't like this system. She was sick of these dumb blonde roles being pushed on her, roles with no substance. And although she was, although she was under contract with Fox, all of a sudden she just refused to accept uh, these roles that they wanted her to take. And she started her own company to produce her own films. Again, extremely unheard of. Fox tries to teach her a lesson by casting someone in, her, in place of her in the movie she was refusing to do, casting Sherry North in a 1955 musical titled How to Be Very, Very Popular, and it fucking tanked. Fox comes crawling back, Tries offering her other roles, but she ignores those as well. She wants more money, more power of choice in her contract. They try bad-mouthing her in the press now. They take it public. If she wouldn't work for them, they're going to ruin her reputation so she can't work at all. 
And then in response to Fox trashing her in the press, she holds her own press conference, announcing she should be focusing full-time and really pushing our new production company now. And then uh, Monroe's last film with Fox that she had uh, filmed just before this feud, uh, The Seven-Year Itch, is released in June 1955, and it's a huge success. And then Fox is like, oh, hey, Marilyn, we were just kidding. We were kidding about telling everybody that you suck and that you're a terrible person and hard to work with. How about, hear me out, how about we give you everything you wanted? How about we do everything the, the, the way you want it? And then you don't continue making movies without us. How about we are so sorry? P- please, please do not, please do not leave us. Please, please, man, do not leave us. Please come back. Uh, so in September, uh, Variety reports that Fox was finally willing to meet Marilyn's unprecedented demands, which included story and director approval, cinematography approval. All right. Uh, in addition, her salary was boosted to 100000 per film. She was allowed to make films, co-produce them uh, uh, with her production company, uh, work with independent producers, work with other studios. And then she signs you know, another contract with 20th Century Fox on December 31st, 1955. A few days later, the Los Angeles Mirror News prints the following statement. Marilyn Monroe, victorious in her year-long sit-down strike against 20th Century Fox, will return to the studio next month with a reported $8 million deal. Veterans of the movie scene said it was one of the greatest single triumphs ever won by an actress. Check that shit out, right? Cool, man. Marilyn Monroe, destroyer of the studio system, taken to the man. Taking it to the streets, taking it to the streets. Ushering in, <laughs> ushering in a new era of the actor or producer. All right. Then, in early 1956, she teams up with Fox and Bojangles to, films the, to film the box office juggernaut, Bojangles Takes Manhattan, the story of a one-eyed, three-legged dog-slash-fighter-jet pilot who's been hired by the President of the United States to take back Manhattan from the clutches of the lizard Illuminati. No. In 1956, Bus Stop is the first film she makes after her hiatus, and it finally gives her the reviews she's wanted. Uh, the well-respected Bosley Crother of the New York Times opened his commentary on the film with, quote, Hold on to your chairs, everybody, and get set for a rattling surprise. Marilyn Monroe has finally proved herself an actress in Bus Stop. She and the picture are swell. Swell, even. Ooh, throwing swell around. Well, if the Hollywood elite weren't still butthurt about her victory over Fox Studios, a lot of people think she would have won Academy Award for that film that year. All right, also in 1956, she marries playwright and screenwriter Arthur Miller, the guy who wrote Death of a Salesman and The Crucible, among many other works. Uh, Miller was a departure for her as far as her taste in men. She'd had two marriages uh, to uh, two athletic traditional guys who wanted her to settle down, be a housewife, make some lasagna. She wasn't interested. So she marries a nerdy, academic, uh, left-leaning political type. She really did love the nerds. Uh, one of her prized possessions was an autographed photo of Albert Einstein, which included an inscription to Marilyn with respect and love and thanks. So, any nerdy dude, uh, time suckers listening right now, you can be a nerd and you can get a gorgeous girl. There's precedent, all right? You can totally be a nerd. Just don't be a fucking teeth, you know, or wearing sweaters and not strong enough to open a jar of pickles, nerd. Don't be a gross nerd. Have some respect for yourself. Well, Monroe took pride in being married to an intellectual, one quote being, if I were nothing but a dumb blonde, he wouldn't have married me. Well, they didn't stay married too terribly long. They divorced five years later in 1961. A series of miscarriages strained their relationship as did Monroe's increasing use of a variety of pills later in her life. Uh, sedatives, uh, tranquilizers, opiates, speed pills, sleeping pills. She's on a lot of stuff. Stuff that didn't mix well with a family history of mental illness. Uh, some suspect she may have been experiencing bipolar symptoms as well towards the end of her life. Uh, she was also consuming, if not abusing, a great deal of other barbiturates. 
methamphetamines, uh, not like meth, but you know, that was the ingredients, uh, a combination of barbiturates and amphetamines, uh, used for depression, uh, opiates, sedative, uh, librium, alcohol, uh, champagne was a favorite of hers, but she also, uh, drank a great deal of sherry, vermouth, and vodka. And then her relationship uh, with Miller was uh, irreparably damaged when she, when she stumbled upon a diary entry of Miller's in which he complained that he was, quote, disappointed in her and sometimes embarrassed by her in front of his friends. Ouch. Marilyn is fucking devastated. One of her greatest fears, uh, that of disappointing those she loved, had come true. I'd be devastated too, man. You think you're safe with somebody and then you find out they're embarrassed by you? That's a tough one to, to get around. <laughs> Somebody's diary that they you, you embarrass them. Uh, I think you feel a little used. You know, you question their motives for being with you in the first place if, if you're so fucking embarrassing. So now she's 35, financially very successful, but struggling with drug use. She's been divorced three times now. You know, after the, after her divorce with Miller, she's alone. One of her biggest fears was always to be alone. Uh, from her diary is a quote, alone. I am alone. I am always alone, no matter what. Yeah. No dad, no mom. Not really. Uh, I mean, my mom's still alive. But not, not a maternal figure. Actually, her mom would outlive her by many years, you know. But she wasn't, again, she wasn't a mom, just some lady who fucked up her childhood. Uh, she has no kids. Uh, sure, she'd taken in Bojangles as a pet, but he was in a foul mood. His acting career had washed up, cataracts in his remaining eye, and he has arthritis in two of his three last legs. Or two, two of his last three legs. <laughs> Sorry. That fucking nonsense. Uh, Marilyn takes the rest of 1961 after divorcing Miller and wrapping the last movie she'd complete, uh, a movie Arthur Miller had wrote and directed called The Misfits. Uh, it was also Clark Gable's last film. He died of a heart attack 10 days after rapping. Kind of a cursed film, The Misfits. Uh, she rekindles a friendship of sorts in 1961 with DiMaggio. Uh, maybe he was calmer towards her now that he'd been taking out his aggression on his Marilyn sex doll. And then 1962, the last year of her life, she begins filming her last project, a movie that was never finished called Something's Got to Give. Apparently her behavior on set was very erratic. Uh, she was briefly fired by Fox. She seemed out of it at times. She was having health problems. She suffered from endometriosis and a uterine tissue-related disease that can cause severe stomach pain. So she had some physical ailments as well. Uh, but she did manage to make it to JFK's uh, 45th birthday party on May 19, 1962, where she sang her sultry happy birthday serenade to the notorious womanizer. You know, we've all heard that. Happy birthday, Mr. President. Uh, she was rumored to have an, had an affair with him previously. Uh, Monroe biographer... Uh, J. Randy Terraborelli Terabor uh, gives an interesting account of that event. Quote, The glamorous actress first caught Kennedy's eye when she made a spectacular entrance at a dinner party held in his hotel, uh, in, uh, in his honor at a hotel in New York in February 1962. Actress Arlen Dahl, who was at the event, recalled that the president turned around and you could see that he was immediately attracted to her. Finally, you're here, he said with a big smile. The two supposedly rendezvoused in Palm Springs in late March. JFK friend Smathers believed that Monroe regarded her relationship with Kennedy as much more serious than it actually was. Quote, it wasn't a big thing as far as he was concerned, Smathers explained. To JFK, Monroe was like a lot of pretty girls who had fallen very much in love with the Kennedys just by being around them a little bit. Monroe's famously sexy rendition of Happy Birthday to the President at a May 1962 fundraising event in Madison Square Garden, which triggered gossip about the two having an affair, prompted Kennedy to back away from Monroe according to the biographer. The movie star wouldn't take no for an answer and reportedly called the White House numerous times in an effort to rekindle their affair until the president finally sent a friend to dissuade her. All right, so there's that. And then just a few months later, in the early morning hours of August 5th, 1962, Monroe's psychiatrist, Dr. Ralph Greenson, finds her dead in the bedroom of her Brentwood home. Greenson had been called there by housekeeper Eunice Murray, who was staying overnight and had awoken at 3 a.m., sensing that something was wrong. Murray had seen light under Monroe's bedroom door, 
but had not been able to get a response and found the door locked. The death was officially confirmed by Monroe's physician, Dr. Hyman Engelberg, uh, who arrived at the house at around 3.50 a.m. At 4.25 a.m., they notified the LAPD. It was estimated that Monroe had died between 8.30 and 10.30 p.m., Toxicology report later revealing that the cause of death was acute barbiturate poisoning. Empty bottles containing these medicines were found next to her bed. Now, the possibility that Monroe had actually ever accidentally overdosed was ruled out because the dosages found in her body were several times over the lethal limit. Okay, so was it a suicide, as the coroner reported? I mean, they did find a lethal level of barbiturates in her system, and she had attempted suicide in the past. You know, kind of. Not nearly that amount of pills. She did have a history of mental illness in her family, uh, which can lead one to making some especially bad decisions. She was acting a little out of control on the set of the movie she was filming up until her death. Out of 33 shooting days on Something's Got to Give, Marilyn had showed up uh, on the set only 12 times. So, you know, maybe she did kill herself. It's not like she was the most stable, emotional person. Uh, But on August 1st, you know, just first four days before her death, she she was rehired by Fox... On a, on a huge deal. Um, it was uh, a million-dollar two-picture deal. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a deal to live for. Uh, and there's also a lot of strange stories about the days leading up to her death that make you wonder if she may have been set up. I mean, she would be the perfect person to make it look like she had killed herself, you know, with her public history. But, it, but did someone, you know, uh, kill her and make it look like an accident? You know? And if they did, who and why? All right. So let's get into some conspiracy. Some conspiracy I'm actually kind of excited about. One popular theory is that she was killed by someone on behalf of either JFK or his brother Robert Kennedy or both. The JFK or Bobby had something to do with it. That her death was a murder orchestrated by Bobby Kennedy to silence her. She was about to reveal all the dirty Kennedy family secrets she'd kept logged in a little red diary. Uh, there's rumors that Bobby did not act alone. He had co-conspirators in her murder. His brother-in-law, actor Peter Lawford, Maryland psychiatrist, Dr. Ralph Greenson. Supposedly, he gave the star a fatal injection of uh, pentobarbital to her heart. There are allegations detailed in a book by writers Jay Margulis, a longtime investigative reporter, and Monroe expert, and Richard Buskin, a New York Times bestselling author of 30 nonfiction books. This book, called The Murder of Marilyn Monroe, Case Closed, claims that Bobby Kennedy was determined to shut her up, regardless of the consequences. Uh, and Peter Lawford uh, supposedly revealed this later. He was racked with guilt over her st- over her murder. He said it was, uh, according to these authors, it was the craziest thing he ever did, and I was crazy enough to let it happen, talking about Bobby. Uh, it was a murder allegedly witnessed by an ambulance attendant uh, who arrived at the film star's home and saw Monroe's psychiatrist, Dr. Greenson, inject Monroe directly into the heart with that barbitol, uh, 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 breaking a rib uh, with a needle. Um... Yeah, Bobby Kennedy uh, supposedly got involved in a messy sexual affair with Marilyn in the summer of 1962, and then he was sent up to L.A. by his brother Jack, JFK, to convince the screen goddess to stop calling the president at the White House. The president was not going to divorce Jackie and marry her, but Bobby fell under her spell, slipped into the bedroom with Marilyn. Uh, quote, it wasn't Bobby's intention, but the evening they became, but that evening they became lovers and spent the night in our guest bedroom. It's what Peter Lawford uh, allegedly revealed later. And then, uh, and then she fell for, you know, Bobby too. I guess she wasn't at JFK. Maybe she was interested in Bobby, but Bobby also wasn't going to leave his wife for Marilyn. And then feeling kind of just, you know, abused and mistreated by these, you know, guys, she threatens to go public with the whole affair. That's what the authors claim. They claim that uh, Bobby and Marilyn got into an argument the day before her body was found. And uh, according to this theory, Kennedy told Marilyn that he would never marry her, and Marilyn threatened to stage a public conference and reveal her affairs with him and his brother. Kennedy demanded that uh, Marilyn leave him alone, 
and to hand over the diary. When she kept track of her affairs, Marilyn refused, and Kennedy left in a fit of rage. That's what these guys claim. There's also claims uh, by others that the mob was possibly involved. Uh, Darwin Porter, a biographer and travel writer who's written dozens of books, claims in Marilyn at Rainbow's End that Marilyn was killed by the mob in, in a variation of the conspiracy I just went over. Porter speculates that mob boss Sam Giancana possibly paid off by one of the Kennedy brothers, ordered a hit on her. He said that Robert Kennedy had gone to Marilyn's house that day, got in an argument, as we've already explained. After he left, a partner of Giancana named Johnny Roselli visited her at 10 p.m. When he left, he unlocked the front door, then let five mafia hitmen in. One of the hitmen sneaked out behind her uh, while she was in the front room, uh, slipped a chloroform-soaked washcloth over her face, they undressed her, administered an enema of barbiturates. Kind of a weird way to do it there. Uh, moved her into the bedroom. Left after hearing Eunice Murray walk into the house after the police were called. Peter Lawford arrived at the scene, stole the little red diary, uh, you know, a little red book that was said to have been filled with details about Marilyn's various affairs and sexual encounters. And, and, and according to a Vanity Fair article, uh, when they found a bunch of her old kind of letters and diary writings and stuff, uh, you know, well after she died, she did have some weird things to say about Peter Lawford. She said, quote, the feeling of violence I've had lately about being afraid of Peter, he might harm me poison me, etc. Why? Strange look in his eyes. Strange behavior. In fact, now I think I know why he's been here so long because I have a need to be frightened. And nothing really in my personal relationships lately has been frightening me except for him. I felt very uneasy at different times with him. The real reason I was afraid of him is because I believe him to be homosexual. Not in the way I love and respect and admire, uh, who I feel feels I have talent and wouldn't be jealous of me because I wouldn't really want to be really want to be me, whereas Peter wants to be a woman and would like to be me, I think. Okay, so she's kind of rambling there a little bit, but what I gather, you know, from that excerpt is that, you know, she just thought it was weird that maybe he was kind of uh, obsessed with not wanting to sleep with her, but wanting to, like, be like her, and that he's hiding this. I mean, this is a dude, he's part of the Rat Pack, you know, uh, Peter Lawford. Uh, he was kind of a, a alleged womanizer, I dated, you know, various kind of, uh, uh, female celebrities uh, of the day. I mean, that would destroy his reputation if secretly, you know, he had a kind of a Bruce Caitlyn Jenner thing going on underneath. You know, the, the you know we accept that now. They, they weren't going to accept that in the early '60s. You know, if he's a crossdresser or, or gay, the scandal would have fucking ended his career. And what if, on top of that scandal, what if he really ha uh, Marilyn really had slept with JFK and Bobby Kennedy, both brothers? I mean, everybody knew JFK was a womanizer. But they didn't know, no. You know, they had to, they didn't have it thrown in their faces during a fucking press conference, you know, with someone telling the whole world about it. And not just someone, Marilyn Monroe. You know, and Marilyn wasn't afraid to stand up to people. You know, she did it in a public fashion with Fox. She stood up, you know, publicly against an entire studio, you know, that could have destroyed her career. And, and the scandal would have been huge for Bobby Kennedy because he wasn't known as a womanizer, you know. I mean, a far-reaching scandal like that involving Kennedy, brother-in-law, uh, Kennedy, brother-in-law, Peter Lawford, JFK, Robert Kennedy, that could have ruined the entire Kennedy family's political career, you know? I mean, and this is a fucking powerful family. At least one Kennedy family member had held federal elective office every year between 1947 and 2011. They've been running in the highest circles of East Coast politics and high society since the dawn of the 20th century. Do you think they'd let one drunk, drug-addicted actress tear the entire fucking machine down? I don't think so. And again, this is all speculation. The coroner did rule it as a suicide, but I do think it's suspicious. You know, according to another article I found, toxicology tests were only carried out on her liver when the deputy coroner, Thomas Nagochi, tried to obtain other organs for further testing. He was told they'd already been destroyed, which was against protocol. Is that true? Was protocol really broken? If so, why? Could the president of the U.S. United States uh, have pulled some strings to get something like that done? I think so. 
Uh, also, Veronica Hamill, an actress who, who bought Marilyn Monroe's house in 1972, uh, claimed uh, that when she was renovating the house, she discovered an extensive system of wiretaps. Is that true? Why were they why were they wiretapping her if it was true? You know, this is all the McCarthyism and everything's going on. There's weird shit at this era. You know, finally, the Kennedy brothers uh, were both assassinated. JFK a year after Maryland in 1963. Bobby six years later in 1968. Politicians don't get assassinated very often in this country. Why do two members of the same family get assassinated? Could it be bad luck? Could it be coincidence? Sure. Or were they up to some shady shit and some of it came back on them? You know, it was a little live by the sword, die by the sword. You know, were they doing things, creating a lot of fucking enemies, like having, you know, potential problems killed? Again, this is a wild conjecture. Uh, adding to it is a recent bunch of Monroe's old mail, though, she kept that has been discovered. One of the letters she kept was sent by Jean Kennedy Smith, younger sister of Bobby Kennedy and JFK. A uh, letter sent to the Hollywood star Marilyn Monroe. And in it, it says, quote, understand that you and Bobby are the new item, exclamation point. We all think you should come with him when he comes back east. What is she talking about? Why is she referring to Robert and Marilyn as an item? Were they an item? Was his marriage in trouble secretly, known within the family? You know, even the head of the FBI, this isn't just, you know, total crazy talk. Uh, uh, Hoover, you know, who feuded with Attorney General Robert Kennedy, he wondered about it. In his autobiography, uh, William Sullivan, Hoover's deputy director at the FBI, wrote, Hoover was desperately trying to catch Bobby Kennedy red-handed at anything he ever did. We used to watch him at parties. Eventually, uh, Hoover did conclude the stories about Bobby Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe were just stories, but he did look into it. You know, what if Marilyn's revelation would give Hoover the ammunition he'd been waiting for to ruin the Kennedy's careers? This is a powerful politician. These are big fucking stakes we're talking about. You know, I wish I could dedicate a month to researching this particular theory, but I don't, I don't think I'd really find much more than I gave you. You know, again, it's all wild conjecture. You know, uh, I, I can make this a 30 fucking hour podcast about Marilyn Monroe, but nobody wants that. Oh, but I, but I, I'm even more curious now to look into the JFK stuff, man. Uh, I'm gonna have a special eye towards his Monroe affair uh, when I do that. Bonus suck when we hit 600 reviews. So okay, suicide or murder, nothing can take away from the amazing life she did have. All right, let's 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 end with that. A girl who dropped out of high school at 16 to get married. Uh, a girl who never knew her father, who was sexually abused and tossed from place to place like a rag doll. A girl with uh, a mom who would have been better off just abandoning her. This girl scratched and clawed her way into Hollywood royalty, becoming one of the most famous actresses of all time. She defied Hollywood, stood up to Hollywood, and won, changing the way studios negotiated with actors forever. She married one of the biggest baseball stars of all time, walked away from him when he wasn't treating her right. Married one of the greatest playwrights of the 20th century, walked away from him when he wasn't treating her right. She met Einstein, the Queen of England. What a life. What an amazing person. And when you watch her movies, when you look at her pictures, you get why she became a star. At least I do. People talk about that it quality you know, in Hollywood. You know, Does someone have it? That it, that special quality, that, that intangible. I think Marilyn Monroe personified that quality. I mean, you, you kind of fall in love with her when you see her, you know? She's like some, you know, mythical siren drawing sailors towards the rocks. Despite her fame and beauty and magnetic charisma, though, she still died alone. Now, that's what a complex life she had. Never really found love. And isn't life strange like that? You know, you, you see somebody who you, you think has it all, but maybe they don't have the one thing that mattered to them the most. Right? Maybe, uh, maybe you listening, maybe you're, you're frustrated with your job, your, you know, your life uh, in a variety of ways. But you, uh, you know, might actually have it better and be happier at your core than one of the biggest icons in American history. Interesting how life works. And, uh, and now, it is time for some top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, third time's a charm. 
Uh, Marilyn Monroe started and take off until her third studio contract. She could easily walked away from Hollywood after the first two rejections, but she stuck at it. Good lesson there regarding tenacity. Even pretty people have to work hard sometimes. Number two, as if the thought of growing up in an orphanage wasn't sad enough on its own, Marilyn Monroe grew up in the only one that let orphans blow uh, candles out on their birthday cake, only to then take that cake away from them. Number three, Joe DiMaggio was a 13-time Major League Baseball All-Star, nine-time World Series champion, two-time batting, home run, and RBI champion, holder of the record 56-game hitting streak, and a guy who may have spent the early years of his retirement fucking a $10,000 Marilyn Monroe sex doll like some basement greasy-haired creeper. Number four, Marilyn Monroe probably died of an intentional drug overdose. But I will now forever believe, me in my gut, that there's a good chance she was assassinated by the soon-to-be-assassinated themselves Kennedy brothers. Yeah, that's what I believe. Number five, uh, I want you to know that I for sure made up all the Bojangles references. Please know that. Please know that. I don't want any of you talking about Marilyn Monroe's involvement, doing some fucking tour of your own, and then start throwing out uh, how she used to have an eye patch wearing three-legged super dog, you know, and, and attributed me as a source of that knowledge and destroying what little cred- credibility I've got. Time suck. Top five takeaways. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to this Time Suck. Get ready for Pablo Plantain Bottom Escobar this Friday. So much Coke. So much Coke. Also, uh, I forgot to mention, because uh, I'm a moron, uh, Don't Wake the Bear, my last album, is now on video. You can rent it or buy it on iTunes. You can watch it. You can watch those jokes instead of just hearing them. Uh, sorry, uh, it has yet to make it to streaming, and, and please don't email me about when it might be on streaming, because I don't know. Uh, it's the reason this special, I will never work with Warner Brothers Records again uh, going forward. I either get a release deal with a network or I self-release, so I don't end up with another special that I have no fucking control of or no idea what's happening. Uh, that being said, I do think it came out well. So if you want to see it again, you can rent or buy it on iTunes uh, for the moment. And thanks for all the subscriptions. Thanks for telling your friends and spreading the suck. Now, let's ride out on a few Marilyn Monroe quotes because she has some of the best ones. I'm selfish, impatient, and a little insecure. I make mistakes. I'm out of control and at times hard to handle. But if you can't handle me at my worst, then you sure as hell don't deserve me at my best. A lot of ladies love that one. Uh, I like this one. Hollywood is a place where they'll pay you $1,000 for a kiss and 50 cents for your soul. And this one's a little sad, uh, but a great one to hear for everyone who has a daughter. No one ever told me I was pretty when I was a little girl. All little girls should be told they're pretty, even if they aren't. I love that. Tell your girls they're pretty. And one last one, I think is just funny, regarding putting up with her, being chronically late and hard to work with. Director Billy Wilder once said, I have an Aunt Minnie who's very punctual, but who would pay to see Aunt Minnie? Goodbye, Norma Jean. And goodbye, you guys. Have a great week, everybody. Talk to you on Friday with that Pablo. Keep on sucking. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that 
you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck.